This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Our scripture reading today is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 27 to 36. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to his disciples, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found out Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. This is the Gospel of the Lord. We pray that you would open our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can behold Christ, that we can gaze upon his beauty and be transformed into his image. Lord, help us to still our hearts, to take off our shoes, realizing that we stand on holy ground in the presence of the eternal Son, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Open our hearts, open our eyes. And shine on us with your transforming glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps today, on this muggy August afternoon, you might feel as sleepy as Peter and James and John. And if you're like me, you might be feeling a little sluggish and a little weary in your own journey of change that God is calling you to. And I believe that This story of the transfiguration, which Timothy read for us from the Gospel of Luke, is a powerful, joyful impetus to be continually ascending towards what God has held out to us in Christ Jesus. Because the story of the transfiguration is not only a revelation of the glory of Christ, it is also God manifesting to us our own destiny as human beings being recreated in the image of Jesus. The Christian life at its very simplest is about beholding and becoming, looking at Jesus, taking in the full glory and splendor of who he is and what he's done for us. And as we gaze on him in faith and trust and love and adoration, we find ourselves somehow by the Holy Spirit becoming more like him. Probably none of you 
We're aware that yesterday, August the 6th, was the Feast of the Transfiguration because in Western Christianity and in Catholicism and in Protestantism, the Transfiguration, this story, does not figure very prominently. We're not quite sure what to do with it, how it fits in with the birth of Christ and his death and his resurrection. It's kind of a strange story. But in Eastern Orthodoxy, this story of the Transfiguration is actually massively significant in their iconography and their theology and in their liturgy. And in fact, there's a little tiny little church in Sketa that's honestly not much bigger than my bathroom, the Church of Antioch. And on the ceiling are painted these five large icons by Heraklitz and Sadze back in the 90s. And there's one of the birth of Christ, one of his baptism, one of his crucifixion, resurrection. And the fifth one over the door is of the transfiguration of Christ. Because in the Christian East, going all the way back to the Greek fathers of the church, they understood the transfiguration of Jesus as being a powerful symbol and foretaste of what human beings are called to become by the grace of God. And if there's anyone here who desires to see the beauty of the Lord, if there's part of your heart that is telling you, seek his face then I believe God has something to speak to you from this story this afternoon, sleepy and sluggish as you might be. And it is a very odd story, this story of the transfiguration. Peter has just confessed, a week earlier, Peter has just confessed that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the one that's been sent by God. It's the revelation given to him by the Holy Spirit. But to the horror of Peter and the other disciples, Jesus immediately follows this revelation with the terrible news that he is going to die. He is going to the cross. He will also be raised from the dead, but somehow the disciples can't hear that. He foretells that there is going to be suffering before glory. And then Jesus concludes that conversation with this promise. There are some of you standing here among the 12 disciples. Some of you are standing here and you are not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God. And it's very clear the way that Luke tells the story, as also Mark and Matthew do, that this vision of the kingdom, Jesus is pointing to what is going to come after just a week later, what's going to happen to three of the disciples. Jesus takes Peter and John and James and he takes them up a hike up this mountain where Jesus goes to pray. And they toil up the slopes of this summit, and then Jesus begins to pray, and and the disciples, as they always seem to do, begin to yawn and begin to feel very tired and struggle to keep up with Christ and his devotionals. And they flop down on the ground for an afternoon nap after their sweaty march up this mountain. They find a little shade tree, and they curl up on the ground, and they fall asleep. And as he's praying alone... Something very strange happens because Jesus' face changes. He begins, as Matthew describes, his face begins to shine like the sun. And his robe becomes bright as a flash of lightning. It's just blinding white. And the whole mountaintop is irradiated with light and is glowing on the horizon. And then even more strangely, these Old Testament figures who left this planet hundreds and hundreds of years ago, almost a thousand years ago, Moses and Elijah appear and they start having a conversation with Jesus. The topic, Jesus' departure, literally his exodus is the Greek word that's used very significantly. This exodus, which is about to be completed in Jerusalem. 
And then Peter and his companions on the ground begin to stir, begin to be woken by this brilliant light going right through their eyelids. They have the sound of people talking, and they must have thought they were having a very strange dream. And then they sit up, and they rub their eyes, and they pinch their arm, and they look again and stare at these glowing figures, and they realize that something very unusual is happening. And to be honest, it kind of fries their brains. James and John have nothing to say, but Peter is never at a loss for words, even if his brain and his mouth are somewhat disconnected. And he thinks to himself, wow, this is amazing. What an incredible spiritual experience. And he asks Jesus, before Moses and Elijah leave, let's try to freeze this moment. And let's like find some branches and leaves and like build little, little shelters, little tabernacles, so we can just stay here and enjoy this literal mountaintop experience. And while Peter is thoughtlessly blathering, a cloud comes and overshadows the mountain. And as the three disciples enter into the mist, they're overcome with fear. And then a voice speaks from within the cloud. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And then suddenly the whole thing is over. It's just switched off. And Jesus is standing there alone on the top of the mountain. The cloud has vanished. Moses and Elijah have disappeared. And Jesus' face is just the face, and he has just the clothing of an ordinary Jewish peasant. And then they head back down the mountain. And as Matthew and Mark record, Jesus warns them, don't tell anyone about what you saw and what you heard until I have risen from the dead. That's a very weird story. I mean, there are strange things in the Gospels. There are wonders and there are miracles, but this is in a category all by itself. What on earth is happening here in Luke's account? Well, if you've spent any time immersed in the Old Testament, the mountain and the lightning and the cloud and the voice are all elements of what we call a theophany. A theophany is one of these majestic, terrifying experiences of God when the creator bows down and touches his creation and people see God revealed somehow in wind and earthquake and fire. And even those gathered at the bottom of the mountain, far from the vision, fall down on their faces in fear. And the lonely prophet makes his way up the mountain, taking his life in his hands for an encounter with Yahweh. And it's no accident that it's Moses and Elijah who are appearing here with Jesus, because these are the two great Old Testament figures who ascended Mount Sinai to meet with God. Moses, of course, led the people out of Egypt through the wilderness to Mount Sinai in the middle of the desert, and he went up to the mountain, which was clothed in darkness, and there were flashes of lightning and storm clouds. And while the people were down below, afraid to even touch the mountain, lest they die, Moses goes up and spends 40 days with God, and he receives, of course, the tablets of stone, the law of God in his hands, while the 12 tribes wait in their encampment below. And during that time, Moses makes an extremely bold request of God. He says, God, please show me your glory. And God says, well, you cannot see my face and live. Your frail humanity is just going to implode in my presence. But I will put you in this cleft in the rock, and I'm going to put my hand over you as I pass by, 
And when I've passed by, I will lift my hand so you can see, you can just glimpse my back as I disappear. And that is just about enough for any human being to handle. The story of Elijah may be a little less familiar to you. It's described in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah, the discouraged, persecuted prophet, makes a 40-day journey to Mount Sinai in the desert, and he climbs up, and he starts camping out in this cave. And then God appears. First, there's a wind and an earthquake and a fire, and finally, there is a still, small voice. And when the prophet hears this whisper, he puts his garment over his face, and he steps outside of the cave to speak with God. Elijah blindfolds himself because he knows that the vision of God will destroy him. It's death for any mortal being to look into the face of God. So here in Luke, we have these two great men of God, symbolic, of course, of the Old Testament law and the prophets. These two people in the Old Testament who ascended the mountain to see the face of God, which they were not allowed to do. And here at last, almost a thousand years later, Moses is brought up from the dead. Elijah is brought down from heaven so that their desire to see God can at last be fulfilled. Because make no mistake, what we are encountering in this story is the revelation of Jesus' divinity. This glory radiating from Jesus is not the faint glow of some earthly prophet or great teacher or holy person. Moses and Elijah are not having a conversation with a peer. They are conversing with their Lord. And Matthew's account, which specifies that Jesus' face is shining like the sun, makes it clear that the light on Jesus' face is not being reflected from some outside source. This is no borrowed glory. The light is shining from within. You know the revelation that Peter had, that their rabbi was the Messiah, which he'd had barely a week to take in. That was staggering enough. But now the full glory of Jesus is being disclosed. And Peter and James and John are having to face something far more staggering, even than that Jesus is the Messiah. Their rabbi is the Son of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You know, the disciples had been severely disturbed when Jesus had stood up in the boat in the Lake of Galilee below them and calmed the storm and the waves with a single word. When Peter hauled in the miraculous catch of fish, And saw how many fish were in his net. He begged Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. They had had these disturbing glimpses of who Jesus might be. But now they are direct eyewitnesses of the divine majesty on this sacred mountain. And their minds now have to grapple with this revelation that Jesus of Nazareth is the God of Sinai the one who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light. Now, let's not be confused about what is happening here. We call this event the transfiguration, the Greek word metamorphosis. But this is not a story of Jesus somehow becoming God, as though this is him leveling up 
to a new dimension of divinity. It's Jesus' appearance that changes, not his essence. And in a sense, the real transfiguration in the story, the real metamorphosis is actually in the disciples who are given a momentary glimpse of the divine glory as their eyes are opened and awakened from sleep, the light that was hidden but is now revealed to them. This is an amazing manifestation of the glory of God. But what is incredibly remarkable and thrilling about the transfiguration is that the glory of God is shining out of a human face. The humanity of Jesus is just as real as my humanity or your humanity. This is not him wearing some kind of meat suit that he takes off and throws to the side to reveal himself as who he really is, God. In the transfiguration, Jesus' humanity is not an obstacle to the divine glory. Jesus' humanity is the vehicle of God's glory. It's like the burning bush that Moses saw. In Christ, human nature is burning with the presence of God, but miraculously not destroyed. And therefore, this gospel account tells us that your own humanity is not an obstacle to the revelation of God's glory. Your humanity is designed to be the vehicle of God's glory. The transfiguration reveals what God had always intended for the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. And the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is not just about his own glory, but it's about making human beings sharers, partakers, participants in that glory and in that light. And therefore, the transfiguration is the story of who Jesus is by nature, but also who God is calling all of us to become by grace. That may sound a little wild to you. I haven't been in the pulpit for a few weeks. Maybe I'm just getting a little crazy. Let me ground it in the text and in how Jesus himself frames this event. I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. This is not just a manifestation of the king. It's a revelation of his whole kingdom. And it's no accident that Luke is careful to record that what happens on this mountaintop occurs exactly eight days After Jesus spoke these words. Of course, the creation story in Genesis happens over a period of a week. God creates the world in six days. He rests on the seventh. And that's the cycle of time that the people of Israel and the whole world live under going round and round in this rhythm of creation. But Israel was looking forward to an eighth day that God was going to bring. The beginning of a new creation when Broken, fallen humanity and this cursed world would break out of the bondage of this cycle of time and change and decay and enter into a new age of everlasting glory. And the transfiguration is a foretaste, a foreshining of God's new creation and the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Listen to the 7th century monk Anastasius of Sinai. He said that on the mountain, 
Peter and the other disciples saw the sparks of the divine sunshine of the regeneration to come. On the mountain, Peter and James and John saw the sparks of the divine sunshine of the regeneration that was to come. This is the light of the new creation shining on this mountaintop in a small, limited local place. For the briefest of moments, God is revealing how he is going to irradiate the new heavens and the new earth, where the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. Also the place, Jesus says in Matthew 13, where the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. God has always had a great plan and an incredible destiny for the human race. Not just to forgive our sins and wash us clean, which we joyfully celebrate. Wonderful as that is, there is a gift even higher than that, much higher than that. And that is that we would become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter himself describes it in the first chapter of his second letter. Partakers of the divine nature. To actually share in the uncreated energies of God. The church fathers described this destiny as like a sword plunged into the fire. And as that iron weapon is held in the flames, it begins to gradually take on the properties of the fire without ever ceasing to be an iron sword. And in the same way, God's plan for all of us, a process which has already begun, is that your human personhood would be plunged and held in the very life of God. So that without ceasing to be who you are, without losing your personal identity and consciousness, you begin to take on God's own likeness. That we would be like God. Not in the way that the serpent tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. He offered a promise of being like God without being with God and in God. But human beings were created in the image and the likeness of God. And God's whole project in this world and in your life is to transform you from glory unto glory in that image. This is your human destiny. And as Jesus is transfigured and glowing with divine light, he's not just revealing God to us. He is revealing humanity to us. This is the new man. This is the second and the final Adam. This is the image of the man from heaven that you are destined to be conformed and changed into. Your humanity is not an obstacle to God's glory. And there are forms of human religion which enslave and crush and kill people and try to destroy people's humanity. Your humanity is not an obstacle to God's glory. It's the vehicle of it. Your humanity that God has given you as a precious gift, so defaced by the fall, so devastated, so ruined, so cursed, redeemed by Christ. And God has plans for your humanity that you cannot possibly imagine. 
This might be kind of a weird illustration, but can I talk about the movie Elvis for a minute? I don't know if any of you saw that. Michelle and I saw it at City Mall in Sabertalo, and there's a scene toward the end of that movie where Elvis, he's rented this whole hotel in Vegas, or he's got the whole stage in Vegas, this massive, massive stage, and he has a very simple black gospel song that he remembers from his childhood, and he wants to put it on this stage. And he hires, I think, a 33-piece orchestra. He's got a whole brass section. He's got a black gospel choir. He's got drums. He's got all these instruments. And he begins to go through and start to layer together this richly textured sound, one on top of the other, because he wants a huge sound, a big sound that is going to fill this massive stage. This is a faint picture of God's plans for all of us. To take our humanity, which seems so simple and so frail and so small, Not to destroy that humanity, but to transpose it and magnify and glorify it to the highest possible level that created nature can enjoy. And our own transfiguration happens in and only in and through and only through Christ. This is not about some self-powered ascent up the mountain to reach God on our own. It's only through Jesus And there's this incredible pathos in this story because Jesus is revealing his divine glory. Peter wants him to stay there, but Jesus does not. He goes back down the mountain to deal with the demonized boy, to face the curse, to love humanity and all its lostness and its brokenness, and to go to Jerusalem and die for Peter and James and John and you and me. And on the cross, the very sun will be darkened as the Son of God suffers and dies for the sins of the world. All this to lead us in a new exodus, to lead us out of darkness into his marvelous light, where we're clothed with the white garments of holiness, whiter than any launderer on earth can whiten them. And also, to shine forth his own divine glory from our transfigured faces. Becoming happens through beholding. Beholding and becoming. And this change, this metamorphosis occurs as we gaze on Christ in faith. As we all with unveiled faces, quoting Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, as we all with unveiled faces, not like Moses, With God's hand over him in the rock, not like Elijah with his robe pulled over his face, we all with unveiled faces contemplating the Lord's glory are being transformed even now into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. This process is already happening. At this very moment, we are being transformed. Sleepy, sluggish, disobedient disciples, though we may be, the Spirit is among us, and the kingdom of God is within us. It is so easy to grow discouraged, to become weary in doing good, and to forget that we will reap in due season if we do not give up. It is exhausting to ascend the mountain. It is death to crucify the flesh to fight against our own evil desires, to turn away from the false self 
the empty self, the mirage that the evil one tries to present before us, and to turn and face the Lord and reach forward for our new self created in his likeness, in righteousness and holiness. And we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the metamorphosis that is already occurring, that he has already begun in all those who have turned to the Lord in faith. Your faces are already shining. Very faintly, but the flicker is on your faces. Brothers and sisters, we do not yet know what we will be, as John tells us in his first letter. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Let's pray. I'm going to pray a very old prayer, not of my own writing, but we can enter into these words together. Father, we come to you with amazement and with thanks that you have counted us sinners worthy to walk forward in the light of your presence. Lead us up onto the mountain of vision. Shine on us like the sun. Cause all your goodness to pass before us in the person of your son and transform our hearts to listen and to obey his voice with gladness. And Father, judge us worthy of the transfiguration that is yet to come. Join us together in glory with the saints who have been made perfect. Lord, source of all divine grace, shine your light on all who walk in the darkness. Work your divine energy within us and enlighten us with your grace and your love for us all, which is also the love of our Lord Jesus Christ with the Father and the Holy Spirit, now and always and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.